May these words of my mouth and this meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Have you done it? Have you managed to make Christmas stretch for the full 12 days? I confess, I failed. And I failed because I'm actually fairly practical. And I had two 20-something sons who departed on New Year's Day. And I didn't want to carry those heavy boxes in and out of the attic by myself. Another holiday tradition that is observed in many homes and in some churches is to actually move the three wise men closer to the crash as you get to the epiphany, signifying in a tangible way the long journey that they took to greet the newborn king. As a child, I was always enthralled with the wise men. Maybe because in depictions in my storybooks and in our westernized manger scenes, Jesus and the Holy Family looked Norwegian. (laughs) And they were wearing drab clothes. But the three wise men, they looked different. And they were all decked out in colorful and exotic robes, holding bedazzled gifts. They captured my imagination. So who were these three travelers? Were they wise men, astronomers, astrologers, scientists? We call them magi. There's so much legend around them that it's hard to know where the Bible leaves off and the stuff of myth begins. What you heard read from Matthew's gospel today is, in fact, the only specific reference to these particular wise men in the Bible, particularly the gospels. I want us to pay attention to what we did not hear. We did not hear that there were only three of them. There are three gifts, but it does not say how many men there were. In some traditions, believe that there were actually 12. We did not hear them named. The assignations of Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior did not come until much later. We did hear that they were from the east, but not specifically where. Arabia, Persia, China, India, all have been guessed, and many countries claim them. And actually, that claiming of them by different Eastern countries has actually been a tool of evangelism. Some have been brought to Christianity because in the wise men, they have seen someone who looks like they do. People who see a geographic, ancestral, or traditional connection between themselves and those who believed in the kingship of Jesus. We also did not hear Matthew call them kings. There are two kings mentioned, Herod and Jesus. There are also several wise men in this story. 
One commentator suggests that the true wise men are the chief priests and scribes, those men who were learned and knew the scripture and could direct Herod to the words of Micah, which foretold a ruler of Judah who would come from Bethlehem. Herod didn't know this, and the visiting travelers did not know this, but the true wise men did. So who are these magi, and why do we care? (laughs) What relevance is this story to us today? One component of this narrative that has always been appealing to me is the trusting and obedience of the Magi. These men were trusting enough to set out on a journey to a faraway land following nothing more than a star. They knelt before a mere baby, believing him to be king. And finally, they were obedient to a dream, a dream that directed them to make their long journey home by a completely different path. They had no hope of comfort in retracing their steps, no reconnecting with relationships that they had made on their way to Bethlehem, no familiarity with landmarks along the way they had already traveled. It had to be a whole new route. And they did it. We don't know if they complained or argued among themselves. I would guess they probably did. I would. About whether they really needed to do it this way. The writer of Matthew just tells us they did it. They were obedient to the dream. The story also challenges my sometimes narrow perception of where God can be found. We Episcopalians have some very particular ways of experiencing God, especially on Sunday mornings. In varying degrees of formality, we cross ourselves, we kneel, we might genuflect, we pray from a book, we light candles, we wear interesting clothing, we reverence the altar, we take communion, And we automatically respond to certain phrases like, peace be with you. Very nice. The word of the Lord. See, we are well trained, aren't we? We have a pattern and a rhythm for God in our lives, both personally and particularly corporately. Because the Episcopal expression of worship is so familiar and rich and comfortable for me, I sometimes forget that God speaks to people, and even to me if I'm really paying attention, in very different ways. There is no biblical or mythical reason to identify the Magi as Jews. They had no knowledge of Hebrew scripture. They were not looking for a Messiah, and yet they found him. They traveled far because God called them on this journey, to this worship, 
to this witness of the newborn king, Jesus. God called them and directed them. And so, as God often does, God provided affirmation. The Magi announced the birth of the king of Jews, and the chief priests and scribes who did know scripture immediately confirmed the validity of their journey and their message. God reached out to the most unlikely, Luke's shepherds and Matthew's eastern astronomers, men who worked in fields and men who studied the meanings of stars. These were the heralds and evangelists of the Messiah. I'm not advising that we start looking for God in our horoscopes, but I do think we should acknowledge that God shows up in all sorts of places and uses all sorts of people to fulfill God's purpose, not just good practicing Episcopalians. Some of you may be familiar with one of my favorite books, An Altar in the World, by the Episcopal priest, lecturer, and professor Barbara Brown Taylor. She writes about being a detective of the divine, looking for God anywhere and everywhere, not just inside the walls of St. John's or any church, the Book of Common Prayer, or in the folks who sit around us, not just in the comfortable practices that we share every Sunday morning. She writes, People encounter God under shady oak trees, on river banks, at the tops of mountains, and in long stretches of barren wilderness. God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes, and perfect strangers. When people want to know more about God, the Son of God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, to women kneading bread and workers lining up for pay. And she concludes that whoever wrote this stuff believed that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to Scripture. Perhaps what we could learn from this epiphany story is that God can and does use the wildest things to bring people to God, even stars and astronomers. Think, too, about the double blessing of this journey. On the way there to Bethlehem, they encountered people with whom they shared the mission of their journey. And on the way back, a whole new set of people because they had to travel by another road. Their obedience and their flexibility allowed God to use them to protect the Messiah and to further spread word of him. It's interesting to think about what ways God might be able to use us if we followed that example. 
if we are willing to manage our expectations and remain flexible to God's call, to be trusting and obedient and willing to take another route. Many of you know that I have always wanted to be Nancy Drew. So it will come as no shock that these weeks of epiphany are my very favorite. If you too love a good mystery, you're going to love these coming weeks as the church explores the stories, the clues that reveal Jesus' divinity. It's the perfect time of year to practice being a detective of the divine, both inside church and outside our doors.